Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the panel, we have Adi Ainga. Hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have a special guest, and that is Thomas Kununpura. I hope wow. Pura. Pura or Pura? Kununpura. Okay. Uh, people call me TK for short, so that's probably the easiest way to reference me by. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Then uh, TK, why don't you tell us why we invited you today and what you think about Lex here and what you usually do? Sure, sure. Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, just quick caveat, I'm a total and complete noob to Elixir. My experience with Elixir was just reading the programming Elixir 1.6 book by Dave Thomas. And so I'm looking to get educated on Elixir as well during the podcast. Anyway, about me, uh, I currently run the sales engineering team for Solus for the Americas region. Solus is the makers of an advanced event broker and an associated platform. Uh, prior to working at Solus, I mainly spent my life in the financial services and banking industry, so building real-time, low-latency trading systems, as well as credit card processing systems, and used Solus in that capacity, as well as other things like Kafka and Rabbit, which I'm sure we'll get into. So a huge part of my role is talking with customers. Around three to four years ago, met with a customer in Canada, and they said, hey, there's this really cool programming language called Elixir makes building distributed applications really, really simple. And so that was always in the back of my head. And I had some time to kill over Christmas break break, and I picked up the program Elixir book and found it very, very fascinating. And then I wrote a short blog post about my experience with Elixir, um, which is, I guess, the reason why I'm on this podcast. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast. And you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with top end devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to top end devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah, exactly. Okay, There was this blog post from you, like event-driven Elixir. And that's why we invited you. Because I think event-driven especially is like probably a bit of a buzzword at this point, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's something which also maps fairly nice to, to how the Beam and Elixir functions in general. Um, one question right at the beginning, I mean, you said you your contact with Elixir was basically reading a book programming Elixir 1.6. Have you like ever written any Elixir yet? Because, I mean, 1.6 is quite a while ago. I mean, oh, Elixir is now at version 1.13, so... I see. Interesting. So, yeah, I did write short snippet of code for my blog post, which was um, integrating the Solus feedback broker with Elixir. And I ran through the programming exercises as well. So uh, that's the extent of my writing code with Elixir so far. Okay, fair enough. So how have you been liking Elixir so far? And how was your experience, especially with your background and like event brokers and stuff like to, to integrate that? Like any any learnings you might want to share with that, especially since you usually have like a different background in other languages? Yeah, yeah. So my go-to language, I, I'm a Java programmer by trade. I also dabbled in JavaScript, various frameworks over the past few years. So heavily, heavy object-oriented background. But what Elixir, I think, forces you to do is think about state very differently. So and primarily manipulate state through recursion rather than maintaining state. And then you have the concept of OTPs and uh, the supervisor as well that deals with how do you manage state. So it seems like Elixir has aspects of messaging and sort of Kubernetes built into the programming framework to deal with restarts and whatnot. And I found that very, very fascinating. The fact that this 20-year language that has its root in telecom shows, you know, it's it's very hardened. And they've thought through a lot of these difficult problems that typically come up with building distributed applications. 
So I found that very cool. And that's something I've also, I think, said in the past on this show that, I mean, a lot of the problems they had to solve back when they, when they envisioned Erlang and the Beam are problems we now have again today. So they definitely were, like Erlang and the Beam are definitely, were definitely ahead of its time at the point where they right. were envisioned. And, but yeah, I, I feel, I mean, you also have like an interesting tidbit about where you basically compare, okay, what does Elixir bring to the table in terms of distributed programming? And I think that makes sense because you just said that you had this customer who said, hey, it's, it's like cool language, which does distribution pretty well. I mean, and there you write that, like, for example, the built-in distribution mechanism is like a, it has no mechanism to say, okay, I'm gonna be have more security, except for just connecting. Maybe, what if if I want to only allow certain nodes to do certain things, or what if I want to make sure that messages actually arrive, or what if I want to fan out messages and all that kind of things are not topics which the built-in distribution mechanisms of the Beam handle at all, to be honest. <laughs> so I think. There are probably a lot of people out there who like look at Elixir and say, hey, like this has this distribution thing like kind of built in. Maybe we can use that instead of using Kafka, instead of using RabbitMQ, instead of using like an external message broker or what messaging system in general, and just rely on these built-in primitives. And that can probably work, but I feel it's worth to talk about, okay, where does this come from and what are some of the trade-offs you're going to you're going to buy in when you choose to go down that route. So maybe lay out, if you would be up for it, like lay out a bit, okay, like uh, this is like some of the the topics I, I researched and this is why, for example, you might want to go with a different setup of like an event broker and what that offers in the context compared to the built-in mechanisms. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so with Elixir, you have the ability to connect nodes together. And essentially, it's a point-to-point connection where you say node one, connect to node two. And what happens underneath the covers is that node one will open a TCP socket directly with node two, right? which is all fine and good. But uh, there's a few shortcomings, at least from what I've discovered, to that mechanism. One is the one thing that jumped out at me, especially when we talk about the financial services industry, is that you know security is of utmost concern. And the way nodes connect to each other in Elixir is through a secret or magic cookie, right? Which is an arbitrary length uh, string of text that, that's essentially a password. And once you have that magic cookie, then node one can connect to node two. Um, and then by default, that's plain text, that connection, but it can be made TLS to my understanding. Um, and so when you're sending messages and making nodes as part of your Elixir sort of distributed application network, having that single magic cookie as a primary means of nodes connecting to each other may not work for some of the use cases. Then the second thing is, uh, based on my understanding, messaging in Elixir, when you send a message from one node to another, it's best effort. So what happens when there's an interruption or network blip, or you know, if you lose connectivity between nodes, uh, my understanding is that that messaging is not guaranteed. And then also, messaging in Elixir is inherently point to point, so it's node one directly talking to node two. So when you want to have fan out the messages, say node one send messages to hundreds or thousands of nodes, then that may not be scalable. And then finally, when you talk about especially with the cloud or even data centers, when you want to distribute messages from one geography to another, sometimes point to point may not uh, just cut it. And you need something in between to essentially buffer the communication so that node one speaks locally and then that thing, an event broker, would distribute it out to the rest of the nodes in the network. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think... It's important to talk about like where where these things came from because I mean as we all already mentioned earlier, Erlang and Beam they come from telecommunication twenty years in the past, and from my understanding, I mean I wasn't I wasn't there when it was envisioned. I was ten years old when that happened, so <laughs> my my mind was not a computer science at that time. But uh, where that came from was like they had these scenarios where they had telephone switches, like physical devices they own and operated, and on these telephone switches, they had then software running Erlang, Erlang nodes, which then connected to each other through like a well-maintained physical backplane. So topics 
we we have today where we very rightly so have to consider okay what if the network goes down like what if i use connectivity maybe in my in my cluster especially if i'm doing like something like multi-region those were not of such a big concern back then because you, you had this physical backplane and if some like if you have network connections issues there then probably something is physically broken there and like some guy has to drive out anyway so that's why some of these, these trade-offs have been made in the same sense that way is okay now these con- <coughs> these uh, applications and these node connect between each other well most of most certainly they will all be made the software will be maintained by the same people it probably will even be the same piece of code running on multiple network switches who then where, where then at that point um, security in the context of, okay, maybe only this node is not to call that part or only this node is not to call that part is just not important. And all of these like trade-offs, you're making things you should know when you reach for the distributed mechanisms, which are still can be super powerful. I mean, at the end of the day, it allows you to say, okay, now I spin up multiple versions of my app, but I can, for example, communicate between these different nodes inside of my Kubernetes cluster for something. Like this is something the Beam gives you. But it's not the magic cookie, okay? It's not the magic knife to cut down on all of your problems. But instead, as usual, that's like a specific tool for a specific job, which does maybe not map as neatly on some of the the ways we tackle problems today. So, I mean, I actually have used distribution in one of our projects in a previous job where we have basically this one service which so to speak, was responsible of like stitching together microphone and responses from multiple other services and then serving like a full-blown page and that used like WebSocket connections. And that, then we had multiple replicas of that service, but it might have been that, for example, like one session for a certain microphone then was located on a different node and then like it could basically communicate between this different node to stitch together the response. Like that, that was a pretty good fit of a use case. But at the same time, I mean, if, if you actually have requirements where you say, okay, maybe I'm not interested in all all of the traffic, uh, so to speak, or either I want to do fan out, or I want to do subscribe to only certain parts, then distribution, maybe it's like a good starting point to get off quickly, but it's probably not the end of the road where it solves all of your problems. Right. And then I feel, I mean, we have, we have there's this notion in the Elixir and, and the Beam community that you only need Erlang to, to, to solve all of your problems. And there is some truth to that. I mean, when you look at other tech stacks where you say, okay, I, I'm going to run... Uh, what, what was that? Uh, what, what's the one? I'm going to Apache as a web server, and then I'm going to program in PHP, and then I'm going to have Redis as like ephemeral storage and all of that. And there's a lot of that you can op- basically remove complexity by just using tools Erlang gives you. But I feel this part, I like might want to distribute messages between different applications, is maybe not quite it. And that is where then other tools like RabbitMQ, or Kafka, or Solace, which to be honest, I've never heard of from before, <laughs> come in into the equation and, and help you tackle these problems. In yeah, but hey, RabbitMQ is Beam. RabbitMQ is Erlang, yeah. Yep, that's right. Also, that is true. Yeah, that is true. So actually, do you do you know Ali? If RabbitMQ offers like a Erlang native clustering solution, can you can you do that? I'm sure there's a way to do it, but I don't think it offers it out of the box. Oh, at least I've never used it. But Thomas, you've used RabbitMQ too. Do, are, are you aware of something like that? Yeah. In in the cu- context of clustering Rabbit? Yeah. Because so, Rabbit is based on Erlang. Yeah. So, yeah, my understanding is that you could link together Rabbit brokers through bridges, but it's, my understanding, it's a separate process that bridges from one RabbitMQ process to another. And so then you have that intermediate process that you have to worry about state and recovery and high availability and whatnot. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I've done the linking across for RabbitMQ. If what I understand, unless I'm wrong about something, but I believe all of the uh, RabbitMQ is actually built on top of the Erlang distribution. So they both have positives and negatives into it. I can't believe, I can't remember what it is, but I think there is some negatives to using the native distribution that the RabbitMQ team knows about and they're there's no way that they could work around it. It's kind of stuck with it. I, f- I forgot what it is from the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's the reason why they chose Erlang was because of all that distribution to begin with. Yeah, no, I mean, in that context, I feel it makes sense when you have this homogenous code base. You say, okay, I'm going to now solve this problem of having an event broker. And in that pro- problem space, in the domain, I'm reaching for something like we built in distribution. Like, I, I can see that being useful. But 
Yeah, then again. Yeah, I mean, this RabbitMQ thing, it all came from banking, which is quite interesting. So I think this AMQP was a broker protocol from the financial industry. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who got the idea, but somebody decided to make it with, um, with Erlang. And obviously it worked good enough. But the weird part is that I think they're using a specialized version of like 08 something. And like this AMQP, it's like AMQP 2.0 is totally different from AMQP 1 or 0. Dot something. I can't remember what, yeah. what it was, yeah. but I just remember that, that it, it's really different. That, that's right. So the Rabbit protocol is based on AMQP 092. AMQP has since standardized on 1.0. And it's such a different protocol that it's impossible without completely rewriting Rabbit or making significant enhancements to be able to support it. However, that being said, AMQ, like Rabbit is still, depending on what metric you look like, one of the most popular event brokers out there today. And because the 091-092 protocol was very simple and accessible, it makes it good for easy use cases. But once you start doing some things more complex, then it, it breaks down in certain cases. So Adi, I mean, you're also using Rabbit right now at your current job. And I think you already hinted at earlier before we started to record that there are some pain points for you. So, Yeah, well, I mean, it, I guess kind of what Thomas said. I mean, if you try to do things differently than what it's built for, that's where it starts becoming problematic. I would love to actually hear from Thomas about a Solus and like, you know, you mentioned like uh, the... I had no idea about the AMQB 0.9.1 whatever versus 1.0. I would love to learn about that and like what Solus uses and what problems it solves that RabbitMQ cannot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we could we could get to that. Yeah, so Solus is actually close to two decades old, and one of our main challenges in the market is that, as you guys uh, noted, you hadn't heard of it. So we've made a name for ourselves in the capital market. So this is low latency trading, which is where I got exposed to Solus. So our initial product was a purpose-built hardware appliance that doesn't have an operating system in the data path. So it's all embedded firmware. And so what that allows you to do is off go to a customer and say, hey, we could guarantee you 16 to 18 microseconds of latency point to point, so from publisher to subscriber. And because of that, our capital markets customers love us because they don't have to tune the operating system. They don't have to tune the the network cards. What you see is what, what you get. You just rag and stack it. You're good to go. You get that performance. And a large portion of our business is still today with hardware appliances because whether it's capital markets or you have IoT use cases for phone manufacturers that require massive scale and um, extreme guarantees around availability and redundancy and latency. That's where the hardware appliances fit into play. And so that's that's our primary differentiating factor. So as the customers move to cloud, they're like the big data, big cloud providers, AWS, GCP, Azure, Alibaba Cloud, they're not going to allow customers to take our hardware appliances and put in their data centers. So our customers came to us and said, what could you do for us? So we virtualized that code in our hardware appliance, containerized it. And with that container, you could deploy anywhere on your own uh, bare metal servers as a VM or in the cloud on the EC2 instance, for example. Customers came to us further and said, you know, we don't want to love and care for the software brokers that we deploy ourselves, so what could you do for us? So then we launched a SaaS. And so with our SaaS, you could click a button, deploy a broker in the cloud if you're choosing, even in the in, in a private cloud. And the great thing about these three form factors, a hardware appliance, a software broker, the messaging is service, they seamlessly interoperate. So I could start out coding an Elixir app on my desktop using the uh, Solus Docker container, then just configure, change a host name, point it to a hardware appliance, or point it to a SaaS, and my application will behave exactly the same way. Um, obviously, there's going to be throughput differentials between the form factors, but apart from that, feature function-wise, the API doesn't know or care really whether it's talking to a hardware appliance or a software broker. And then the next thing we pioneered is around distributed event-driven architectures. So customers today, they have data centers. They may have data centers. They're obviously moving to the cloud. They maybe have presence in multiple clouds, as it is with many of the financial services institutions. So how do you get a network of event brokers that form a, a mesh talking to, a, talking to each other intelligently? So the way our brokers work is that you are hardware. If you have, for example, a hardware broker, hardware appliance, solace broker, deployed on-prem, you could link it directly to the SaaS so that you don't have any intermediate bridge components that, say, move messages from one broker to another. It's just brokers talking intelligently to each other. 
So you could form this mesh of brokers around the world or in different data centers or different regions. And then on top of that, what we do is intelligent routing. So once you have this mesh, for example, you're you're a you have a event broker deployed in a semiconductor manufacturing facility in China and you link it to your headquarters in California. You have an event broker deployed in California and you're linking to two brokers together. Now you're generating a lot of noise in your China factory, but you're only specifically worried about perhaps when a sensor goes offline or when the sensor lasers becomes inaccurate, you want to be instantly alerted. So we don't ship all the data everywhere. We only ship it based on subscription interest. So once a subscriber or microservice comes up in California and says, hey, I'm interested in these error events, only those error events will flow through the mesh to the destination. So you could think of it like the internet of message brokers. When you type www.google.com in your browser, you don't know or care where the host is, right? You just get the result in HTML. It's likewise with our event brokers. You subscribe to an event, the subscriber doesn't care or know where it originated from. The event brokers will take care of distributing it to the destination. So throw a lot out out there. I'm sure there are questions. Does that all make sense? So if I would be phrased that basically... The, the event brokers, when you link them together, they know about like all the kinds of messages that can flow and all the topics, but they don't necessarily inter-exchange all the messages all the time, but rather on demand. When I say, okay, now I have a subscriber and it's interested in this particular topic, but like the information, like the schema, so to speak, okay, these are like the topics that are available. Let's like distribute it. And only then when I say, okay, now please actually give me the information, then the data starts to flow. Is that, is that the right summary? Exactly. Exactly. That, okay. that is the exact. And there's tremendous implications for that. For example, we're deployed in Daimler and we connect over 6 million Mercedes cars on the road. And you could imagine that when you click that start button on your Mercedes Me app, you want to ensure that only your car gets started and nobody else's car gets started because that would be tremendous implications. So being able to do intelligent routing securely is uh, across you know 6 million connected cars is something that we've mastered over the past two decades. And that's when you talk about differentiations and how we differ from Rabbit and Kafka. There's many ways to answer it. But in a nutshell, it's it's latency, speed, global distribution, and obviously security is is what our core IP is primarily focused on. So I guess you really cut yourself out of niche there, right? Like <laughs> it really sounds like <laughs> so this came from this particular angle of like okay, we have this high speed trading and then yes. cut out the, the, the niche there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's interesting. I mean just to reiterate again, I mean you sorry, Adi, I just have one more thing. You you had this just to, to understand, you had this physical basically event broker and then then you've virtualized that that's it's kind of kind of cool to be honest yeah. <laughs> i've never heard it like going that way around you know so that's that's pretty dope mm -hmm. okay now go ahead Adi. <laughs> yeah you. i was curious so the intelligent routing it's part of your SaaS uh, offering right and how are the individual i guess the same same uh i guess your critique of how Erlang nodes talk to each other from that like I think I think you mentioned security is a problem there how, how do different nodes talk in your event mesh that's what you call it right yeah yeah so there there's multiple means of authentication obviously you could have a basic username and password but the majority of our customers wouldn't deploy like that we could also make that TLS enabled as well and certificate authentication we could also do Kerberos as well and then we've uh, just introduced OAuth as well so a lot of our customers today, they're choosing OAuth as their security mechanism. And when you have those options, it um, and then on top of that, you could say this specific user is allowed to this, do this specific thing. And you could tie that to your OAuth groups, for example. It makes it a more manageable or secure sort of mechanism to, to talk to event brokers. That's huge. Yeah. Now, wait, if you're talking about OAuth, you're talking about OAuth 2, right? That, that is correct. I just want to be clear. No. Okay. And is that with Pixie or I know there's supposed to be actually an OAuth 2.1 or 2.5 is coming out or already came out, I think, where they kind of I think you have to use Pixie or something. Oh, no, this is purely 2.0. So we, we don't implement an OAuth server. Server We talk to it. So you, you pass us a token, you provide us the OAuth provider, and then we validate it with when somebody tries to connect in. Oh, okay. I see. So they're not the, okay, I got it. Okay. And I, I would be interested. I mean, now let, let's maybe circle back to 
to like <laughs> the root of, of a podcast, so to speak. So I'm I'm sitting here, for example, I want to build like an Elixir application. And let's just say it's an IoT application because I think that a lot of companies are using Elixir for IoT out there. I know from from, from experience that, I've, that, some, that there are a lot of exp, uh, projects in Elixir and IoT. And now I want to connect a bunch of sensors. And what, for example, where would, for example, Solas maybe help me solve certain problems? And then I'm especially interested in, okay, like how does that compare to maybe the same problems with Kafka or RabbitMQ? or other MQTT brokers out there which probably exist and I don't know about yep. um, so what what is like a like in the context for example of IoT and I'm having a beam application running which which maybe even uses some distribution protocols or not whatever that's relevant to the question yeah. well, where would I then reach for maybe the one product or the other yeah, sure. Yeah, so with IoT specifically, we support, there are multiple uh, MQTT brokers out there, as you said, right? So there's Hive, there's Mosquito, which is popular open source. But with Solace, what we've sort of perfected is the architecture of Storm Forward. So in IoT, what you typically will ha- have is a location that may not have great network connectivity. And so when you publish a event to your event broker, to your local event broker, and you don't have connectivity to the other side, what do you do? So we implement through the event mesh, this store and forward architecture, whereby if you don't have that network connectivity, we will store that those messages locally on the broker. And once the connectivity, the mesh resumes, we will start distributing that out as soon as that connectivity is, is resumed. So that's that's uh, point number one. Then point number two is obviously security, as as we touched on. You know, going back to the Daimler Mercedes use case, you want to make sure that is secure as well. So like we're able to individually, like if you have six million connected cars on the road, you have this mesh of brokers, a microservice living in Daimler HQ and somewhere in Germany is going to be able to individually uh, be able to talk to one of the cars on the road and doing that through a alternative message broker can get very challenging in certain cases, almost impossible just because the complexity of the pieces that are involved there. And the third thing is also important is, is our multi-protocol support. So we're not just an IoT broker. We do low latency uh, trading as well. We support JMS, which is a very popular messaging sort of API in the Java world. And then we also support AMQP 1.0. We also support WebSockets. And then on top of that, we also support REST natively as well. So why, why this is important? Because in IoT use cases, for example, you have your sensors that are talking MQTT, which is a very great lightweight protocol, right? Good for limited bandwidth, limited connectivity. And if you have low power devices, that's the protocol you want. However, you may have server-side processes that live in a proper data center, have proper resources, and need more robust features with regards to guarantees and whatnot. So we seamlessly uh, translate. So the publisher is publishing one protocol. The subscriber could be subscribing in any of the protocols that we support. The event broker handles that translation from MQTT, for example, to JMS or to WebSocket. And so uh, you don't have to stand up any external proxies or bridges that translate from one protocol to another. And your IoT devices will continue to talk MQTT, whereas your server-side processes might require more heavyweight sort of messaging APIs to to ensure, you know, do things like security or do things like massive throughput or uh, lower latency. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So just um, to reiterate again, like I could, for example, then write my, my, my application and spawn up a bunch of processes and which consume, for example, a WebSocket. Then I have like a process yep. which, which gets, has a WebSocket connection and then gets events from there. Okay, fair enough. Um, 
I do wonder though, like, I mean, let, let's stick to the example. I'm, I'm building like a Lixx application, maybe this time not IoT, but something other. Like, where would I maybe not use Solace? Mm -hmm. Where would I maybe reach for something more lightweight uh, or yeah. something else? I don't know. Like, where would, I mean, we are, I, I'm asking this because, I mean, we are at my current company, we are not on the scale of like what you just described. It's right. more of like a user facing product. Right. Um, but still, event-driven is, of course, um, a topic we somewhat using right now, but like in a legacy way, let's say that. So, and yeah, we have to make some some decisions to 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 refactor a bunch of this, and so any like revisiting the decision of how we distribute events between different parts of our application is something which becomes very relevant for us soon. So I'm wondering, like, okay, where's where's it? Maybe like a situation where you say, okay, um, yes. I have some background with like low latency or like maybe even high latency event distribution and maybe some of the other solutions out there better serve a specific purpose where what we offer right now is not right for the job. Because at the end of the day, I mean, of course, you, you work at Solace and you, you have this product and it really does its job great in, in, in the niche you cut it out for. But at the end of the day, you also want happy customers, right? So probably it makes sense to talk about, okay, when you maybe want to use something else to not end up having people who use it and are unhappy about it because it just doesn't fit the use case. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so if your messaging is very simple where it's point to point, then I'd say just just go go all in on Elixir's built-in messaging because if you're just having one node talking to another node or talking to a few other nodes directly, then yeah, all good. Then when to graduate from a broker to a broker, regardless of what broker it is. So when you need, when you have geo distribution requirements, or if you're in some remote site that doesn't have proper network connectivity, or if you need more guarantees around, when I say sent, I need some guarantees that the message was received, then you should graduate to an event broker, whether it's Rabbit or, or Hive or Mosquito or Kafka or even Solace. The next question becomes, okay, why would I choose one message broker over another? And then it comes back to, you know, looking at the characteristics of an event broker. So if you're just doing simple IoT, where it's a single site and you just have a few devices connected, open source Mosquito will be fine. But once you start going beyond that and you say, okay, now I have to ship, I, I'm going to have multiple sites and I'm going to have a cloud involved as well. And I need to cluster of IoT brokers. Um, then that's when Solace's differentiation starts coming out because we could form this event mesh, which no other product can do by having one event broker talking directly to another event broker and dynamically propagating subscriptions through the mesh. And then Kafka, obviously, very, very uh, powerful, uh, very, very popular as well nowadays. And the thing with Kafka is it doesn't support MQTT, right? So if you don't require IoT use cases and you have requirements where you need to persist event events for a long time. So once it's consumed, you still want a log of the event and you want it to be there for perhaps you know, months or years or perhaps in, uh, forever. That's where you use Kafka. Whereas if your requirements are such that you know you, you, once you consume an event, you want it essentially to be gone, then you, you're best looking at something like Rabbit or, or Mosquito or even Solace. Um, for that specific purpose. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like, for example, persisting events indefinitely was probably in a scenario where you could monitor event sourcing. Um, yes. But there are some solutions, Elixir Space, then out there where, where you can also reach for Postgres, which works surprisingly well, to be honest. If I've worked with, with systems like that, you would not expect it, but Postgres does a decent event store. <laughs> so, but yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense for me. I would be curious. I mean, you, you said that you are pretty newbie with Elixir, so I guess there's not much uh, perspective on that in the Elixir side. But I mean, I guess as somebody who has worked on a lot of event-driven systems, what are some caveats, uh, maybe across languages, where you say, okay, maybe we've seen customers doing certain things and that always ended badly. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like there are some lessons to be learned here, some wisdom to be shared here. For, for sure, yeah. And the, I guess the number one thing that comes top of mind most when I was a customer of messaging or event-driven products, as well as sitting on this side, is that the network is never reliable. It doesn't matter if it's on-premises or in the cloud. You should always bake into event-driven architectures the fact that the network will break down. And it's to be honest, it's going to break down at the worst possible time. 
For example, in when I worked in capital markets, when you had an event in the market, for example, when Trump tweeted, the markets would go bust, go, go, go like crazy. And that's when you see a tremendous amount of volume, because depending on what Trump said, you might want to buy or sell a certain stock or, or, or things like that. And that's when there's most money to be made. And that's when you need more reliability. Likewise, we have a lot of customers in retail. The most volume that happens in retail is around, obviously, this is pre-COVID and during COVID, it's slightly changed, but pre-COVID, most volume happened around Black Friday. So your systems will be behaving most of the year, but when it comes to that sudden shock of orders, if you don't have the appropriate architecture to back that, including an eventing architecture, then that's that's really the, the test of, of your of your system. So nothing new, but like test under load and ensure that your applications, especially in the event-driven world, could handle things like sudden burst in messaging or a network outage or a network blip, because that is when really the business relies on what you've built the most. And that's really what there typically is an advantage for your systems to be up, as opposed to the 90% of other times where things are hunky-dory and there's not much volume. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's also interesting that you say that because um, that's actually something from my experience, the Beam handles better than some other platforms, just by the nature of how, for example, its schedules work very fairly or how it embraces the idea of let it crash. So rather, based, rather have like one request and one process failing than having all requests and all processes failing. This is a fun little story I can share here. It's like, it's related because uh, that was when I, shortly after I started my, my new job um, and we basically wrote a migration for some of our payment information. And just by the nature of things, like there was a little oversight uh, in that it, that migration generated a bunch of events for every single change, which I think totaled to like 4 billion events in the matter of like, I don't know, two hours or something. <laughs> so fun little thing is what happened there is like all our Elixir services kept chugging along happily and consumed those after a while. I mean, it was a bit was slower, so to speak. But at the end of the day, what broke down was actually Cassandra, so <laughs> which then brought us services down so uh guess lesson to be learned here that in these situations the, the beam is actually something which which can help you fairly well because there's like this great talk from sasha yurik where he showcases how the beam behaves on the load and like it's a very gradual degradation like everything equally gets lower which is better than just everything breaks down horribly and burns so yeah okay alan abby any anything you want to want to ask thomas want to learn about event-driven architecture because I feel yeah, I like I've been a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that when Thomas mentioned when to pick event broker versus just a beam communication, I think one thing to also consider there would be, you know, a lot of people use like deployment ar architecture, which, you know, doesn't have static IP addresses and all that stuff, right? So even for to make your deployments easier and your runtime configurations manageable, maybe even then an event broker can help. So you don't have to like share that cross node information across all the nodes you're deploying, even if you if you don't have that scale, or even if you're doing direct communication. Just wanted to add that little <laughs> point over there. That that that's that was that was the primary reason why I chose RabbitMQ instead of just using Beam to talk to a different process. Yeah, it's also I mean. There's this scenario where, I mean, events are probably something you don't want to lose completely if for whatever reason your service goes down. Right. It's rather like a rec reconciliation scenario where you say, okay, maybe my service is down for, for a minute or two, maybe even longer, but it would be nice if, if this thing comes back, it can at least pick up whatever happened in between and then reconcile itself, which probably also cuts into what you just said, Thomas, right? Like, I mean, network is never reliable at, at the end of the day. Even in an event-driven architecture, you want some mechanism to say, hey, what if I missed some events? What then, right? Might happen. Might happen because of weird reasons you can't even think about right now. What do you do then? And that's like, oh, that's the topic where then say, okay, maybe there's like some, I don't know, that, that's, I'm just making things up now, but like there's like CSV export. You can ingest once per night to just make sure that some things happened in between. That's like some of the experiences we recently had with like missed payments because like, some event hooks, some web hooks just didn't arrive because our payment provider had an outage and then we literally had missed payments and people didn't get access. And that's like, that's not a situation where you want to have to manually fix things, but at least want to fall back on some mechanism where you can say, okay, at the very worst, 24 hours later, things should be back to normal. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very great point. And then it becomes, okay, do I choose Kafka, for example, for that journaling capability, which, you know, it doesn't, does way more than 24 hours and introduce a whole other set of complexities. So we at Solus, we, we looked at that. And a lot of the times our customers, when they talk about re- recovery, it's usually T minus one, like 24 hours or 48 hours at most. So we also introduced replay capabilities from our brokers. So to your point, microservice or database crashes intraday and needs to recover state, you could go to our broker and say, okay, replay data from this point in time to uh, this point in time, and you could recover those messages. Now, again, it's a very different use case from Kafka, where you say, I want a, uh, essentially an event streaming database, where I need a system of record uh, that perhaps replaces my d- database or perhaps you know just, just extends it. Then you, you, you'd go down the Kafka path. And with Kafka, you have essentially an infinite, uh, quote-unquote, infinite storage of events that you're able to rely on. So if you need to recover things from six months ago, able to do that by looking into Kafka. That's pretty huge too. The ability to replay events from a from between a date range. Like I, I know a huge pain in RabbitMQ for me is the whole management, right? Just like and this kind of goes into that umbrella, just like not having transparency into what happened to an event and ability to like replay a message or or a set of messages like through the management mm-hmm. console, which is like there's like no feature. There's no yeah, there's like no tool that exists that allows us to do that properly. So building that was a pain. But yeah, that, that that's really great to know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it is it is a tremendous pain point. And we look when we're architecting this, we're looking at, okay, so we definitely don't want to play in the Kafka space, right? But there is a need in event-driven architectures to do shorter recovery. It's not uncommon that your services fail, need to recover state. That's where replay comes into play. And you could, uh, the way it works is that you could also use it for non-recovery as well. For example, if you're spin up an application and test that needed to replay events that went to production, you could simply spin up that application and say, okay, replay these events to this test application, see how it behaves. So it's also useful for things to do like A-B testing in case you want to understand how your microservice would react differently in case yep. it received the events that went in production. Then also, when you talked about tracing, a feature that I'm personally very excited about, Solace, that's introdu- that's being introduced in the coming months is this feature called distributed trace. And so a lot of the times our customers, they say, okay, the publisher told us that they sent an event uh, message to the event broker. The consumer never received it. Like, who's to blame here? Clearly, it's, it's somebody, it's either the publisher or the subscriber or the event broker. So how do you determine that? So what we're introducing is a feature called distributed t- trace, which supports the, which is based on the open telemetry spec. Essentially, what will That's happen great. is when you publish an event to the event broker, the event broker will then emit an event saying, okay, I received this event, and you could attach a span ID, for example, to that event if you want to. And then when the uh, consumer, when the event is enqueued to the consumer's queue, the event broker will res- uh, emit another event saying, okay, it's now sent for dispatching the consumer. When it's delivered to the consumer, it'll emit another event saying, okay, I delivered this to the consumer. And then when the consumer acknowledges it, the event broker will emit another event saying, hey, the consumer acknowledged it. So you could now have essentially a real-time audit log of your message publication all the way to distribution. And so a lot of our customers, uh, imagine the banking world, right? Where did this high-value million-dollar payment go? Who's at fault for not processing it time and causing the customer to be very upset? they're going to be able to answer it with this feature. So that's something that, uh, just to be clear, it's not yet released, but we're uh, sort of the only event broker on the market that has this feature in the pipeline, to my understanding, and we think it's going to yep. be a game changer. That's pretty cool. It's also like that's fun really fact there, Erlang is one of the f- very few languages which has like a full-blown implementation of the open telemetry specification. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's like a Erlang library, the telemetry, which completely implements all of the things in the 1.0 specification. I think I think well, it might have even be the first who implemented all of that. So yeah, I guess that that just uh, is like a nice tidbit. If some of our listeners say, "Hey, this sort of thing sounds interesting for our use case," then that might integrate nicely into what they already have set up with some of their religious services. I think it's a must-have for even 
even Vintage Architecture. Like it took me with yes. even with all the, the entire telemetry thing setup, it took me like three days to build that with RabbitMQ. But even though it's not at the broker level, right? The where it should be, it's at the publisher and consumer level where we set the span mm-hmm. IDs and like consume the span IDs. So having it at the broker level makes sense because that's where you, you have the control of messages. So okay. that's huge. Again, again, a great feature to have. Absolutely. Yeah, I can also report that from experience. Like we used to work on a fairly big event source system, not even event-driven, but event source system. And that it was always very difficult to reason about, okay, now this thing published this event, but like something down down the pipeline broke, so to speak, right? And then we actually spent quite quite some time on like setting up a tracing solution. It was before open telemetry was the way it is right now. So I mean, we, we, I think we had like a solution of Jagger at the end of the day and something like that working. But still, like the, at that point, we could then say, okay, this request triggered these events, which triggered these handlers, which did that and that. And that, then reasoning about the system as a whole becomes so much easier, especially if you then also go the additional mile and attach locks to the spans. And then you can really, really, really reason well about the different interactions inside of your system. And it, I have to be honest, I'm at a point where I say, hey, if I have like an event-driven or event-source system, it doesn't really matter, but like in a system which, which uses events to, to trigger interactions, I can't imagine working with it without like some kind of distributed tracing mechanism because, <laughs> gosh, it's just, it just makes life so much easier. <laughs> yep, 100% agree. Okay, we're nearing the one-hour mark. So unless we have any last last topics you would like to talk about or maybe you Thomas ask questions for us like as an Elixir newbie you have the opportunity <laughs> now to ask the panel of Elixir makes a question Actually, I have a quick question I'm curious what technology yeah, is built with Solus built with it's a C it's a, essentially a C broker our hardware appliance actually has uh, built on part of it is built with FPGAs as well so there's there's Verilog in there somewhere uh, too and and then with our container we obviously virtualize those aspects of of the hardware into software processes, which is why when you go from hardware appliance to software broker, you see a 10x degradation in performance and throughput, still quite up there. So just to give you an idea of scale, with the hardware appliance, you could do up to 650,000 messages a second. And when you go to software broker, you top out around 65 to 70,000 messages a second. Which I guess is like good enough for most use cases. It's a it probably, <laughs> it's usually a usual scenario of like, don't do too much premature optimization. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you hit sure. that bottleneck. For sure. And yeah, just yeah. another tip that I want to have, uh, add is that, so, you know, how, how do you, your listeners potentially use, uh, take advantage of Solace? So, we, as I mentioned, we come in SaaS and software as well. So you could sign up for a free 30-day trial of our SaaS on solace.com. Now, if you don't want to do SaaS, we also offer a free fully featured software container that's unlocked. You could even deploy to production without talking to us. And that is limited with 10,000 connect, uh, connections and 10,000 messages a second, which again, for most, a lot of the use cases, that, that scale is perfectly fine. And, and so you could take advantage of that as well. Uh, and then, you know, you could reach out to me directly. My Twitter handle is TKTheTechie. And, uh, or you could just reach me through my website, which is TKTheTechie.io as well. Does the container include uh, some of the, the replay uh, c- yeah. capabilities and uh, management? Nice. Yeah. So, so our broker comes with replay. It comes with the event mesh, even our free offering. So you could event oh, wow. mesh brokers together. It comes with high availability too, even our free version. And then it comes with multi-protocol support. So anything that you, API-wise, there's, I mean, think through this. Yeah, there's nothing that is limited on our, even our free version of our broker. When you talk about paid, once you need to go above that scale of 1,000 connections, 10,000 messages a second, or when you need to have things like disaster recovery, uh, or when you have uh, like a huge mesh of, of event brokers, that's when you'd come talk to us and, you know, then, then you'd get into, you know, commercials and whatnot. But it's as good as open source. It's just that you don't have access to the code. And, you know, like, apart from that, it's pretty much on par. I have a question about what is the meaning of as good as open source? I didn't quite get that when I read it from the website. Yeah, so it's it's free to use, deploy in production. We have customers using it in production as well. It's just that you don't have access to the code base because this is a closed source product, but it's completely free, uh, license-wise. Okay. Fair enough. I think there would some there would be some people who say like, yeah, but then it's not as good as open source. 
I'm not yes. gonna I'm not gonna open that can of worms to be honest. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I get what you're what you what you're going for there. Yeah, I think okay, overall, um, like I think it'd be I think for most like you know Audi, maybe you probably want to give this a try. I don't think you're gonna be reaching that limit, right? You, you, so can't, see, you can't see it, folks, yeah. but Adi is like, is like shake, uh, nodding furiously like, yes. yes. I'm going to yeah, give it so. a try just from like the management perspective. And I mean, if it makes our lives easy, even if we don't hit the scale, like if it's if it decreases the amount of time we're spending managing our messages, if we could get rid of my, uh, I mean, eventually, if you if you uh, release a broker with the dispute tracing as well, if we could get rid of, uh, you know, 10,000 lines of code, <laughs> then yeah, that, that would, that's, yeah, I'm definitely going to give it a try. Sure, for sure. Okay. Any last questions, Alan, Ari, Thomas? Otherwise, I would have asked you for your contact information, but you already put it out there. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I guess a question to all of you. As so, uh, as a Elixir noob, what features, based on our discussion and perhaps what you have in the top, in top of your head, like what features or what areas of Elixir you think would be interesting for, for me to look at? Uh, especially because you come from programming Elixir 1.6, which yeah. is fairly old, you feel you should look at Live View. Um, live view is yeah. something yeah. which has been generating a lot of hype. I think overly so to a certain degree, but it's a bit still a very promising paradigm and tool. And I mean, if you're interested in that and say, okay, this is like something um, nice and I would like to explore further than like down the road, it's always, it, like, it, uh, it's very powerful to look at like how OTP in general works. And that, I mean, we already talked about that on the podcast. There's no real good one source to look at that. Um, the Erlang docs are arguably the, the best scenario there and like getting your hands dirty and then figuring out because there is a lot of wisdom in the way the Beam and OTP work, which showcase how this thing has been really better proven over the decades. And that like it, it's definitely something which changed the way I think about building applications. I have a good OTP source that's pretty hands-on. It's called a little... Elixir and OTP guidebook by Benjamin Tan. It's very hands-on, a lot of exercises, and I think it covers the philosophy of OTP in a very exercise-driven way. That's that's a and it's also a very small book, so not a lot of time it, investment. It, it's true, but um, I also I think I picked it even at some point. But um, oh. from what I understand, it's not also not quite up to date. So yeah, I think like some of the code examples for for example, they don't right. really work. I think there's some things which don't work as nicely in like newer versions or some, something like that was there. Yeah, it's I got into a fight with the author on Twitter or something about this. I was complaining to him. <laughs> I just remember that that was early in my uh, my time. But he's all, he's in Singapore, so he's not very far from me. So that's why it's easy for me to complain to him. Yeah, can you can go over and punch him in the face, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, sure. Should go back there. <laughs> no, I'm not. At least I'm not. I'm not inciting violence. I'm just making a joke, just to get this out there. Yeah, <laughs> Please yeah. don't punch people. <laughs> but yeah, like in general, if with, with that caveat that it's not completely up to date, uh, the Little Elixir and OTP guidebook is a really good source on like get on grokking what OTP is going for and what it's aiming for and why it is the way it is. Yeah, so I can I can recommend that. Especially this whole thinking about failure in the context of OTP is super powerful. Like, I, I, I'm not lying when I say it changed the way I think about building applications. So yeah, that's definitely out there. And then like and, for the fancy flashy stuff, again, Live View is just, it's, it's a cool thing. It's it's very powerful. And yeah, so I essentially Googled the best Elixir book and I found, uh, I found Program Elixir uh, 1.6, but is there any other recommended intro book to, to Elixir that you'd... Elixir in Action. Elixir in Action, okay. All right, take a look at that. I think it's. I feel. I feel like it's. It, it gets a little overshadowed by programming elixir, but I think it's again more hands-on, more detailed, mm-hmm. and it's more likely you'll retain things after re- reading that book compared to programming elixir. Not to say it's programming elixir is not a good, but um, right. elixir in action is. A, I think it's the best elixir book. Isn't there also this one book? I just don't remember the title right now. I had to Google it, but I can't find it. With like building, where you build basically um, high throughput systems. There's something like that. How what's the title? I can't, I can't put my finger on it right now. Is it the one that came out last year? Pragmat programmer building highly concurrent systems using Alexa, something like that. Mm, might be, but I'm, I could also think of something else. Basically, check a pragmatic program uh, programming. Yeah, but it's, uh, but it's a pretty good uh, recommendation to be honest. Pra- pragmatic programmer has a whole bunch of very good Elixir and also Erlang books. Which, um, if you then realize, okay, this is like a something I'm more interested in and I want to learn more about, you 
Erlang books are certainly worth a look because a lot of the wisdoms in those translate one to one to Elixir. Uh, and since while we're talking about Erlang, there was one book that I read, I think it was 2017. It's called Erlang and Anger. Very small book, but it was purely like the let it crash philosophy book. Oh. Very small book again, like uh, it will not take you that long to finish it. But uh, if, you, if you're trying to internalize that philosophy, uh, that would be helpful too. I mean, it, it, yeah, just uh, having talked to you, it's not going to take you that long to like <laughs> uh, get up to speed with Erlang and Elixir. Got it. Makes sense. All right, make note of those and pick them up. Okay, then since we are pretty much at the one hour mark, I'm going to transition us to picks forcefully now. No more questions allowed. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> Obviously, we don't really have a one hour hard cut, but I still feel it's, it's a good length for a podcast episode. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Um, so yeah, then this week, let's start off with a disappointment. Alan, what are you going to pick? So uh, I'm happy to say that now, finally, I'm back doing Elixir stuff, which is fantastic. And I've been wanting to get more and more better into testing. And so, of course, I'm going to the source. Testing Elixir from Pragmatic Programmers, fantastic book, up to testing queries. So, so far, like I picked up quite a lot of interesting stuff. I think the chain step part was super interesting. Yeah, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff that I never knew about. Like I never knew about like that start supervised part, like that function within the X unit. Like X unit, it's crazy. Like you never think that the built-in testing suite with Elixir would be, you know, so great, but it really is so much better than I ever uh, imagined. So definitely check it out. Uh, even for somebody who's been doing Elixir for quite a few years, there's definitely a lot of tips and tricks in there for anybody at any uh, level to learn how to write uh, great tests in uh, Elixir. So that's my pick. Nice. Adi, what are your picks for the week? Yeah, I mean, b- before I go to picks, I want to plus one what Alan said. It's uh, I read it early last year and it, yeah, the f- philosophy of testing, just my philosophy of testing just completely changed after that, that book. Like, it's, it's a very good book. Highly recommend it. But I have three picks because I wasn't here last two episodes. So the first one is a video game uh, that came out last Friday, which I loved so much that I finished that on Saturday. It's called Horizon Forbidden West. If you haven't played Zero Dawn, you can still play this. They have a pretty awesome intro i guess a uh, recap so check that out one pick uh, from jobs perspective i know a, a elixir recruiter who has a lot of jobs right now i can like uh, uh, add a link to his linkedin profile on the show notes but reach out to him he's like he has got a ton of elixir jobs and third one is a more of a shameless plug i was able to wrap up the draft of my final chapter last week and my book is available for pre-order so if you want to learn how to build Phoenix from scratch, build your own web server from scratch in Elixir, this is a book you should check out and the link will be in the show notes. Nice. Can we get like free copies? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elixir makes people get free copies. Yes. <laughs> doesn't, mean you sh- doesn't mean you should not pre-order also. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thomas, what yeah. are your pick for the week? I'm going to go last. Oh, Addy stole my pick. It's, it's Horizon Forbidden West. Uh, I am a gamer too. Fortunately, it's quite amazing that you're able to finish it because I barely scratch the surface. I'm doing the side quests and whatnot. But yeah, amazing game. Uh, I, I love the uh, the initial one, uh, Zero Dawn and Forbidden West just makes things bigger and better and definitely uh, recommend for people to, to pick that up. And good thing is it's also cross-gen. So if you have a PS4, it works there and it works on, on the PS5, obviously, as well. Nice. Okay, then my pick for the week is um, actually like a little bit different this week and because we are considering to do some like architecture training in our, in our team. Uh, especially in the context of domain-driven design, mostly because I'm very fond of the ideas of domain-driven design. And that was something which then popped up in my search and I didn't realize that it was so soonish, so to speak, is Domain-Driven Design Europe 2022. And it's not, it's in, in June. And uh, there's a whole bunch of very interesting workshops. And I'm seriously considering to like get some tickets for some of our folks there. So um, if you're interested in domain-driven design, then middle of the year in June, Domain Design Europe is going to happen. And I think it's even an in-person event again, which, to be honest, 
which sells it even a little bit more for me because I'm not that much of an online conference person. It just doesn't jive with me. So yeah, I might actually be at the Domain Different Design Europe this year. Not no promises though. <laughs> Still have to talk <laughs> with my with people at work if they pay that. <laughs> but yeah, that that's gonna be my pick for a week. Check it out. It's a very cool conference and with like a lot of cool people. Can recommend it highly. Okay, then it was a pleasure talking to you, Thomas. Absolutely. Thank pleasure you for being on well. the show. For sure. And for everybody out there, hope you enjoyed the episode. And tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.